This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In defending the killing of a king, the poet and Republican John Milton declared, If men within themselves would be governed by reason and not generally give up their understanding to a double tyranny of custom from without and blind affections from within, they would discern better what it is to favour and uphold the tyrant of a nation. Milton's tyrant was Charles I, executed for treason in 1649. The events of his trial saw drama of ideas about kingship, parliament, law and power, set amidst political confusion and the bloody aftermath and rupture of civil war. And despite Milton's claims, whether Charles was justly killed or the victim of a messy coup is still debated 360 years after his death. With me to discuss the trial of Charles I is Justin Champion, Professor of the History of Early Modern Ideas at Royal Holloway, University of London, Diane Perkis, Fellow and Tutor at Keble College, Oxford, and David Wooden, Professor of History at the University of York. Justin Champion, on the 20th of January, 1649, Charles I was brought into Westminster Hall under armed guard to face his accusers. Could you set that scene for us, please? I think we've got to imagine an incredibly bustling, vibrant, perhaps even turbulent hall. The, The trial itself takes place at the south end of the hall, Uh, Westminster Hall is a place of public resort, so before the trial it's full of shops, booths, you go there to get your books, to get your pen, your ink. All of that is cleaned out and massive galleries uh, are created so that this is a place of public resort. As one uh, colleague puts it, it's a place where the trial took place uh, in front of everybody. It's a public trial. Charles is brought in at the south end so he doesn't have to walk through the crowd. There are real anxieties that there will be a military attempt um, to capture him and take him away and save him. The uh, officials, and remember this is, this is a performance, it's a stage play, spend days trying to work out how the trial will look. They spend time thinking about uh, how the Lord President John Bradshaw will process in, how many soldiers he will have with him, what sort of gown, what sort of mace, will he bear the the sword of state in front of him. And at that far south end, Charles is really hidden from the audience. And when we think of the audience, there may have been as many as four or five thousand people crammed into that room, hanging from galleries, hanging from uh, the the picture spaces. And it's a very noisy place... The actual business of the trial is shielded from most of that audience, and we know from the trial records that the business is disrupted by shouts of God save the the king or justice, justice. So it's it's a very noisy um, event, and it's not one that we see often represented on the television of a a quiet little crown court affair. It's very complicated and it's very staged. When Charles came in, did he have any of his own people around him? Charles is on trial for treason. He's only allowed to come in with three servants. He, he doesn't have any legal counsel. He has his back to the audience. So he, he's very, very confused. This is somebody who's used to being treated with regal majesty. Um, he's put in a seat. He's not quite sure where he's meant to sit. Nobody's advising him what to do. So it's very disorientating for him. In front of him, there are 67 commissioners 
Many of them he won't recognise at all. Lord Bradshaw sits on a fine chair in the middle of that. With his bulletproof hat. With his bulletproof beaver. And there's some, some considerable debate about whether that does exist, although I think there claims to be one in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, but there may be many of them. Um, th- th- he's put on trial in, in front of legal officers whom are lost to history, some of them. John Bradshaw is a Lord President. We know about him. J, uh, John Cook is, is another legal figure. Isaac Dorislaus, Dutch uh, historian, very, very learned. The third part of the prosecution is a man called John Ask, and we know nothing about him. And then there are all the others. And then there are 67 Lord Commissioners. So he said that. What were the charges brought against Charles I? The, the, the charges really, I think, go back to November uh, of the previous year, and they're, they're based on the premise that the House of Commons has represented the sovereignty of the people and that Charles I is both a tyrant, a traitor and a murderer, as the indictment goes. He is a a, a public enemy, a wonderful phrase, to the Commonwealth of England. And in essence, he's put on trial both for war crimes but for treason against the people. He has, uh, in, in again their own phrase, exercised uh, unlimited ty- tyrannous will against the liberties and privileges of the people. And they spend a lot of time trying to work out what the precise charge will be. So the idea that the Republican element, both within Parliament and within the army, have sorted out this trial beforehand is a myth. They are still adjusting the language of the charge on the morning of the trial. So th- this is an improvised project, I think. Diane Perkins, Charles attacked his prosecutors, declaring, why are you trying me in whose name you are a rump? Why did he call them a rump? He called them a rump because of pride's purge. Um, This could be construed as a successful military coup, the whole staging and creation of the trial that Justin's just described, um, because what precedes it is the purging of the House of Commons of every MP who was liable to want to continue to try to talk with Charles, try and reach an accommodation or a negotiated deal with him. I mean, among those... Let's just go back to Pride. Colonel Pride, friend of Cromwell prevented 180 of about 460 MPs taking their place uh, because he thought they might be sympathetic to King Charles I. Is that what you're saying? Roughly. Um, we don't actually know the exact number. No, we, um, I know, um, I've noticed between your different either. notes there's a bit of fiddling um, and fouling. But that's about the size of it. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. I mean, it's worth knowing that one of the people exiled is actually one of the five members that Charles set out to arrest in 1642, mm. Denzel Hollis. But come to the main point. So it's, it's a purged parliament. Yeah, it's a purged parliament. But what it's been purged of is the people who still want to negotiate with Charles. What's left in what Charles refers to as a rump and what the nation comes to refer to as the Rump Parliament, certainly after the Restoration, um, is a group of people who are probably in accord with the demands and desires of the New Model Army, which has become a really dominant force in politics, and which is in a way that the driver behind the will to try the king at all, and particularly the will to find him guilty as a murderer and traitor. Um, The army by this stage blames Charles for the war, and that's why they're so eager. The new model army is the Republican army. They've they've been very effective. In the end, they've won the war. Yeah. This very expensive, Absolutely. very bloody war, sometimes called the bloodiest war in English history, uh, up to date. And they are around the Palace of Westminster. Their presence, sort of, uh, luring presence uh, over it all. Can you tell us where were the messages going out between the army and the rump? Were they in contact? Were they saying, "Look, you've got to help"? Were they in contact? 
Um, again, we can't really be 100% sure, but yes, um, almost certainly the rump saw itself. Um, the surviving members of the House of Commons saw themselves as in accord with the army and the army's desires. But not everybody on the radical fringe actually wanted Charles Tried. John Lilburn, the leading leveller figure, didn't want Charles Tried, really wanted to save Charles. So there isn't, you know, as Jonathan was saying, there isn't a, a, the smooth sense of an achieved coup. What there is is a lot of sort of bobbing and weaving and dodging and diving to try to come up with something that will stick and will work and will pay off what the army's come to see as this enormous blood price that has to be laid at somebody's door. The mentality is not unlike the post-World War I wish to hang the Kaiser. Yeah, lots of people have died. Lots of people have lost their homes. Somebody has to pay, and the army's decided that person should be Charles. And other people uh, have just stayed away. Fairfax, for instance... Mm who was on the Republican side, won't go. His wife is very much against. She goes and she cries shame when the verdict is reached. But he doesn't want a king to be tried. So there were people who didn't want anything to do with this, quite a considerable number. They were purged. Yes. Um, look, basically, the whole body of Presbyterian opinion, moderate Protestant opinion, is what goes in Pride's Purge. And, I mean, among those victims, you've got Denzel Hollis, you've got John Clockworthy, who's a violent Presbyterian iconoclast, very much at the forefront of Parliament in the mid-1640s. Um, you've got um, William Prynne, um, famous for having his ears cropped, one of the raison d'etre of the war in the first place, as far as godly Protestants are concerned. He's perched. Robert Harley and his son Edward. Robert Harley, the man who actually cancelled Christmas, an event with which Oliver Cromwell is habitually credited wrongly. Um, so all these very strongly Protestant people who were at the forefront of prosecuting the war in its early years are the very ones who come to be seen as the moderates. They've been displaced by a different generation, and Fairfax is part of that moderate group. Justin gave us a vivid description of the context and the conditions. Was that thought at the time to be very unfair to King Charles I? Were people around the place that evening you know, saying, look, this isn't, he's not getting a fair due? No. Um, the, the people who would have been saying that would have said that anyway, however the trial had been conducted. I mean, obviously the people who've been purged are completely out of sorts with Parliament and with the people who are trying Charles. Royalists, you know, and there are still many of those, are unenthusiastic. But there's no sense that the will of the people of England is being either expressed or thwarted by the trial. There isn't a single will by this stage. There's factions. There are divisions. And, and you can't really resolve that into, OK, everybody's against the trial everybody's for it. David Wooden, uh, so are we faced with a coup d'etat? We're faced with a military junta here. I think so. F fundamentally we are. Justin described it as a, as a staged performance. The other term for it is that it's a show trial. Uh, Lady Fairfax wearing a mask so that people can't identify who she is calls out twice in the gallery, once on the first day and once on the last day. When she calls out on the first day, the troops levelled their muskets at her. Which you call that shame. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a, a longer statement on the first day, but the troops level their muskets at her and the commanding officer threatens to fire. Mm. You imagine a courtroom in which people are firing on the spectators and you get a sense of the nature of the military presence at that trial. It's a very intimidating presence and it's very clear that the troops are there to quell the spectators as well as uh, to ensure that Charles doesn't escape or there's no attempt to rescue him. So there's nothing English, moderate, temperate, ordered about it. I like the idea that we're trying to get into the period through this way. It's rumbustious, it's... it's, it, it's it, well, Justin described it very well, but let's keep to that, because that there's, was what was going on. There's nothing English about it, because no English trial looks like this. 
Everybody knows what an English trial should be like. What a trial does is enforce the king's justice, and it enforces the king's justice in front of a jury. There's no jury here. It enforces the king's justice in the, on the basis of the known law of the land. There's no law here which defines what this treason is that Charles is accused of. And so in that sense, what's happening is a trial in which the law is being made up as they go along, and the procedures are being made up as they go along, and everyone feels... I'm going to disagree in a sense with Diane here. Everyone feels that's not English. Everyone understands what English justice looks like, and it doesn't look like this. Is there any sense, because as as from your different notes, there's some disagreement over this, which is, is there any sense that, that most of us have, they went in there, they knew what they were going to do, they were going to try the king and see him legally execute. Was there any sense of inevitability of the thing being worked out or not? Well, the, this is something historians currently disagree about. My view of this is straightforward. If you put someone on trial for treason, and that's one of the charges, there is only one known outcome to a treason trial. Anybody who goes in front of a court charged with treason ends up dead. Once they put him on trial on the 20th, once that trial begins, there is only one possible outcome in my view, and they understand that's what they're doing, and he understands very clearly that's what they're doing. There is a view that this is all a sort of manoeuvre to force him to make concessions, the outcome of which will be some sort of settlement. It's too late for that, in my view. And let's talk about speed. On trial on the, on the 20th, trial finished on 27th, executed on the 30th. That's right. And so fast, that they, and Justin said, they're, they're, they're organising it as they go along, so fast that they sign a warrant saying that he's going to be executed at between 10 and 5 on the 30th. They get him to the scaffold at 10 a.m., and then he has to hang around for five hours while they pass legislation to say that no one can proclaim the, the new king after his death. And he's sitting there in a little room behind the scaffold for four hours, waiting to have his head cut off while the House of Commons tries to get its legislative process in order. Justin? I think one of the complexities is we, we, we don't really know the inside workings of the trial process. So we, we know about the public bit, and we know that the regime makes a deliberate effort to try Charles in public rather than behind closed doors at Windsor, sorted out quietly, you know, either exile him or execute him. Every single day, those commissioners retire to the Painted Chamber, which is uh, approximate to the, the Westminster Hall, and they discuss what they're going to do next. Now, the, the sense that there's any coordinated project... Is, is really complicated, I think, by that process. Mm. So different people turn up mm. every day and different people make different pitches for what they should do the following day. So I think that the idea that there's a, a preordained plan is, is really compromised first and most importantly by the number of times that that, that court gives Charles... To, to admit his guilt. Six times, perhaps 12 times. They, the last thing they want to do is execute him. Just a second, David. Can I stick with that point? Uh, Justin, I can't obviously come back. Uh, Charles said, and this maybe is the centre of his case, he represented himself. That's, was he forced to do that? It's a treason trial, so he, does, so he doesn't he have has to represent himself. He said, I would know by what power I am called hither. Mm-hmm. I would know by what authority. Yeah. I mean lawful authority. So he's challenging the court front on. Absolutely. Yeah. Charles is is an exceptionally clever man at this moment in his life. And he he recognises that his only way out is to make a claim to be representing law and liberty in a more effective and powerful way. But in that confrontation, we essentially see a a, a head-on clash between a House of Commons 
House of Lords is very, very separate from this process mm. that claims to represent the people of England. And it's a rump of the House of Commons and, and it represents the army more than the people of England. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. But they're, they're claiming that they represent popular sovereignty and Charles is claiming that he represents the liberty of every single man in the land. Because I, I, If I can go to one more point then, please. Because he says, if you can do this to me, you can do this to anybody. That's right. So I am representing the people of England. Absolutely. It, it's a wonderful performance. And it, even though there's some evidence that the Lord Commissioners thought about what they'd do if, if Charles refused to acknowledge their authority, they are thrown into chaos. Mm. They scurry back into the painted chamber and think, well, you know, what are we going to do? We've got to get him to appeal somehow. Mm. David. Well, it, it, yes. It's not the case that the court asks Charles over and over again to admit his guilt. What they ask him over and over again to do is plead. Yep. And he says, I'm not going to plead because you have no authority to try me. Now, the essential thing here is that under English law, the plea is the prerequisite for a trial. Yep. Everybody has to make a plea. You plead guilty or you plead not guilty. What happens if you don't? The law provides, English common law provides for a simple procedure. If someone refuses to make a plea, you take them out and you crush them until they agree to plea. You mean between two big stones? Between two big stones. You crush them, you suffocate them until... Some of them, some people go through this and they die. Mm. They're prepared to hold out. The advantage of doing this is that you're not, never condemned, you're not found guilty, and so your children can inherit from you. If you're condemned, your children can't inherit from you because all your property goes to the crown. So some people hold out under that, what's called la peine forte dior, being crushed mm. to death. Properly under English law, Charles, by refusing to plea should be crushed to death. They don't want to torch the king in public. It's mm. the last thing they want to do. So they're constantly scurrying back to their room saying, what mm. are we going to do now? Mm. They're constantly saying, come on now, please give us a plea, because they need that to start a trial. They then have the problem that because he hasn't pled guilty or not guilty, there's no normal procedure for hearing evidence. And they then have a sort of hole in corner, two days in which they hear evidence in camera in order to say, yes, we did think about the case against him before we condemned him. Diane. And that's all really powerful and entirely true, but I think by looking at the legal side of it, we're missing out on what they're trying to do representationally. What they're trying to do representationally, it's a meaning that comes from Charles's refusal to plead and his grounds for refusing, is represent themselves, the House of Commons, as the voice of the people. And we can tell that really easily from this wonderful inclusion in the trial materials of 23 depositions about royalist atrocities, atrocities committed by the royalist armies, uh, up and down the country from all over. Um, that kind of offer to represent the aggrieved people of England as the principal voice of the prosecution of Charles. By refusing to acknowledge the validity of any of those charges against him as legally valid, Charles doesn't really successfully see off the representation that he's been the enemy of the people. Um, and that's what Parliament's really going for. That's what the, this rump, this group of commissioners are really trying to achieve. They are trying to lay down that it's they, the House of Commons, who are sovereign. And what Charles does that actually is really intelligent and very effective, more than his refusal to plead, is he says, OK, now I'm not going to answer your charges because you're just a rump, but if you reconvene a proper Parliament, I'll answer to that proper Parliament. And that really is very intelligent because it sees off their representational campaign, which to them, I think, is the nub of the matter. You're talking about people. Can we just get this clear? He was sent out while they brought in, as I understand, about 33, 35 people from around the country, and there they were brought in to say he committed war crimes, he committed atrocities as a tyrant would, and therefore he must be condemned. The evidence, as far as I can, from you three, is that they didn't prove that of him. 
Well, I think it'd be impossible to prove that Charles was personally responsible for the massacre at Bartlemy Church, well, for example. Which well, is, they brought know, these is, people in to do it, and they, they didn't do it. They brought these people in to show that the royalists had done those things, and they ended up attributing acts by royalist armies and royalist officers to the king's agency. And that obviously is legally hugely problematic. What it came from in the end was that Charles, from their point of view, had started the war. He'd raised his standard first. He declared war, in that sense, on his own people. And that really is the nub of the charge. What they succeeded in proving was that he'd been present on the battlefield mm. and had commanded his troops. They did not succeed in proving that he was responsible for any atrocities. And one of the crucial things here is that the English Civil War, both English Civil Wars, had fundamentally been fought in an extremely gentlemanly fashion. There were very few atrocities compared to what had happened on the continent. In similar wars, compared to what was about to happen in Ireland, it had been fought with remarkably little cold-blooded murder. And in that sense, the attempt to chart prove that Charles was responsible for atrocities was an uphill work. To prove that he had resisted Parliament, that was straightforward. Everyone knew that. There was no doubt about it. Diane, you were shaking your head violently. I was, um, because I don't think people knew that at the time. Um, they'd all been reading the newspapers, and every single newspaper that comes out in London, parliamentarian or royalist from Oxford, is all about atrocities. I mean, these are daily mail moments arriving you know, on your doorstep of a week. Um, I don't think that people in London in 1649 knew that atrocities were uncommon. Mm. I think they thought they were incredibly common. And so it was a hugely motivational factor as far as people at the time were concerned. That's why I was shaking my head. I, I think also, I mean, th th this hearing of um, evidence from very, very minor, uh, almost unknown figures is, is peculiar. Mm. But, I, but I think what it's also highlighting is that the fact that the king initiated and was constantly initiating further military conflict. So one of the problems in the, in the later 40s is that the king will say, OK, I'll give up, I'll, I'll have a treaty with you, I'll stop fighting, and then almost immediately starts trying to plot to fight again. Mm. Now, that, 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 that is the main force for the accusation that he's a man of blood who drives war on. Mm. I, I don't think, ultimately, they're really that concerned with proving that on this particular occasion um, you know, he, mm. he did this, but what they are showing is that around the countryside... This sort of routine violence is the king's fault. David Wooden. I mean, this is where the, the, the debates that gone up to the last moment until the, more or less until Charles is ushered into the room to be tried about what to charge the king with. They're absolutely mm -hmm. fundamental. The real charge against him is that he is responsible by plotting while he's under army captivity, uh, the Second Civil War, arranging with the Scots for the Scots to invade England. And, and uh, arguably this was, you know, underhand, uh, perfidious uh, and all sorts of other things. And, and that had provoked among parliamentary soldiers, many of whom had seen their comrades die because of this action, enormous hatred and, and mm. quite understandably. But they chose to try him for making war against Parliament for the first civil war as well. Mm. And they debated whether they were going to try him for killing his father, which he certainly mm. hadn't done. Can we just clear this up? The first civil war, we're talking 1642 to 46, and mm. they thought that was the end of it, a lot of people, and they were mm. going to negotiate a peace. And the thing that really triggered the thing was the second civil war, 1648 to 9, which they laid squarely, and Diane thinks fairly squarely, fairly <laughs> squarely, at the door of, uh, of Charles I, don't you? 
Well, I think it's impossible not to lay that at the door of Charles I. He was offered fairly good deals by Cromwell and Ireton. Certainly would have saved his life, um, would have ensured the continuation of the monarchy. Um, reasonable kind of negotiated pieces. And that was what everyone had been aiming for in the First Civil War anyway. They hadn't been aiming to dethrone him from 1642 onwards. What really put them off was that while kind of holding out a hand, apparent hand of friendship to people like Cromwell and Ireton, he was you know, busily plotting behind their backs to bring up rebellions from Kent and Essex and, you know, lay waste the whole parliamentarian regime. And that naturally alienated them. Yeah, I think we can't underestimate how clever Charles is as a negotiator. So all the way through, from 47 through to the end of 48, even though he's technically um, you know, either in prison at the hands of Parliament or at the hands of the New Model Army or the hands of this aristocrat on... You know, Isle of Wight or wherever, he is constantly negotiating with just about everybody and he's exceptionally good at playing off radical elements within the army against moderate elements within Presbyterians in Parliament, with the Scots, with the Irish, with the French, so he's constantly looking for an option and I suspect for many of the military figures it does become fairly apparent the only way you're going to stop him is to kill him. Can we just concentrate on Charles Justin for a moment here Uh, two or three things, his idea of kingship but also on a personal level, because we've got this man, we see him in the great portraits, immaculate, of course, as they were. Now, um, and you talk about, one of you, all three, you talk about him being dishevelled, unshaven. And that's a sort of persecution in itself to someone who has in public always appeared to be the grand figure as, 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 as a divine, and so on and so forth. Were they treating him badly? Were they, did they want to sort of make him look like a... What, a Ch- Char- Charles has very high expectations, it must be said. He, d- <laughs> he does really think he deserves a full court with himself all the time. And as he's kept in closer and closer confinement from you know, Hampton Court to Carisbrook to Hurst and then back to Windsor, the amount of access that he's allowed gets less and less. And there's no doubt that some of the soldiers who are uh, you know, asked to look after him are pretty rough at times. But they're not physically rough. They're just not according him the respect he thinks His Majesty but I'm sorry to be so trivial, but what about the little things, like him looking a complete mess and everything like that? It, it, Ch- Charles, uh, Charles claims when he's at Windsor that obviously somebody's going to murder him, and you know he, he thinks he will be done away privately. Like the others before. Like the others had been done. Yeah. So he it says, I'm not, I'm not going to allow anybody to shave me. So this yeah. is why the, the, the last oh, famous see. portrait yeah. has oh, him right. with a much yeah. fuller, fuller beard. Yeah. Um, and and his, he still has a canopy, he still has musicians, he still yeah. has much more than many many others would have wanted to give him. Mm. When, when he's kept at Sir Robert Cotton's house, again, he has a, about 30 people in his sort of courtly retinue. Mm. It's not what he expected, he wanted more. And I think it's enormously difficult for us to recognise. Charles does believe he's appointed by God. Mm. And he's sort of almost bemused, especially in the court, when, when nobody will help him. You know, his silver cane is meant to have fallen off. Well, help me. Nobody does. It, it's almost that he's incapable. But that, 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 I think, gives him the stubborn authority to challenge the court. Can we bring in this idea he had of kingship, David Wharton? So he is a king. Justin has talked about the divinely appointed, a, a point particularly made by his father, King James I, who wrote about it uh, magnificently, if you're interested, to be on his side, and he was brought up in that atmosphere, and so on. So there he is. How is that playing, do you think, inside him as he's facing this romp? He despises them, and he thinks that they're illegally occupying the place they occupy, and he has a case there. He despises them. He looks around the room. He's got these, whatever it is, 67 people in front of them. He doesn't. Rec- he only recognises two or three of them. He knows that these are nobodies. No- 
Fairfax isn't there. He would have recognised Fairfax. Mm. The general of the commanding forces isn't there. He knows that these are, as it were, middle management who have been put up to try him. And, and that's, as it were, a form of contempt, I think. But it is, I, Justin, I think, has paint, painted a wonderful picture of how being a king is fundamental to Charles. He's been... Uh, since the moment when his elder brother dies, he's known he was always going to be king. He's always been king. He's always been treated with respect. And he cannot imagine an England without a king. And that's why he thinks Parliament in the end must do a deal with him, right up until the beginnings of the trial, you might say. He's convinced they must do a deal with him because there is no alternative king. And England without a king is unimaginable. And so he thinks he has a veto on any settlement. And he expects them to go on treating him like a king because he thinks they must recognise the inevitability of kingship. Diane? Yeah, that's one point of view. But, I mean, let's look at it from another point of view. I mean, you were talking about, and I was talking about whether this was the military coup. I mean, let's remember that Ireton actually wanted not to purge but to dismiss the whole of Parliament and to replace it with two or three hand-picked radicals, in which case we'd have had a genuinely army coup-laden situation. You're all describing Charles as much smarter than I think he was. I think he was a victim of what my grandmother would have called silly cunning. You know, he was great at plotting, but in in the end, it didn't really do him any good because he was incapable of seeing the bigger picture. You know, he was within an ace, and he knew that of being summarily murdered, as some of his predecessors had what been. What was the bigger picture? Um, the bigger picture was the fact that um, it was it had become possible for everybody else in the country to imagine a country without a king, to imagine a country ruled by the army grandees rather than by himself, true? and that indeed is what happened. At that time, in 1649, do you think it was possible for the people in the country to imagine that? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I, I I don't think it was possible for every single person, no, but I think it was not, possible yeah. for the people in charge of him to imagine that, and that was what he resolutely refused to see. I, I, I'd like to think that was, was the case, but I think one of the things we miss very often from the grand narratives of this trial is quite how remarkable all of these very ordinary military men, lawyers, quite how remarkable their action was. They, they were breaking the fundamental sort of beliefs of that society by putting their king on trial. And, and I think they realised that they were, as they put it, you know, sitting at the edge of providence. If they were doing the wrong thing, they, they were blowing it big time. Because they were, they were working, as they thought, to God as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. when you say providence, it was very, very... Again, it's bringing people into that time. It mattered massively that they did the right thing by their conscience and by God. That mattered to them as much as it mattered to Charles, to Charles. divinely Absolutely. appointed. Yeah. So we had two mm. gods clashing. Mm. Yes, and, and both are claiming mm. the same God as mm. both are claiming the same liberty and the mm. same law. But Parliament's God was a God, or the Brump Parliament's God, was a God of battles. Yes. Charles had been defeated twice in war. God had declared by the outcome of those battles which side he was on. And, and that for people like Cromwell is fundamental. God mm. has shown his hand mm. in the outcome of the war and thus they know what God's will is. Well, they're still worried about it, though, because they're willing to interview the prophetess, Elizabeth Poole, because she says she's had a divine revelation from God about what they should do with Charles. And what she says to them is that they have every right to try him, and they're very comforted by that, but that they shouldn't hurt him, she then adds. They're a bit disappointed by that. Um, but you know, plainly, they're, they're really anxious to bring their practices into line you know, with the latest telegram from their God, um, and the, the fact that they're willing to give three days at this absolutely crucial point to this sort of nobody from Abingdon who nobody's ever heard of before because she says she's had a divine revelation about what they should do with the king shows how concerned they were 
to bring themselves into line with what they saw as the unfolding of the will of providence i mean i, th- I think we've we've got to recognize that conviction is driving both sides in a very very powerful way but i i would be worried if we thought you know on one side we have a godly king who who's been brought up and knows that he's representative of god and on the other side we have a group of sort of radical puritans who know that they're right because those radical puritans are constantly anxious that they've got it wrong mm-hmm. you know, if we if we look at cromwell's sort of meditations and letters at this time he's constantly going back to bits of the Old Testament, reading Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. looking at looking at the parallels. You know, have mm-hmm. I got it right? Is this a time of necessity? Is this a time of providence? You know, what happens if I get it wrong? So th- these people are anxious, not that they're making a mistake in a civil mm-hmm. or a legal way, but they're doing the Antichrist work. Is it surprising? Uh, I think Dan has made this point, but I'm looking at you, David. Is it surprising itself that they're trying to make it legal and not just getting on with murdering him in a good old-fashioned English way? Yeah. I, it, it, it's it's. <laughs> Of fundamental importance, that they they don't they don't, not only don't murder him, they don't, as it were, give him a military trial and stick him in front of a firing squad. They try to produce a public legal process, mm. and that's what's unparalleled, and that becomes yeah. the model if we go through it to the execution of the King of the French Revolution, or to the Nuremberg mm. trials, or now, in in a sense, to, to to trials of war criminals. It's the first attempt to introduce a trial for war crimes, and in mm. that sense, it's of yeah. enormous importance, and one has to admire the process. Um, as uh, Harrison said when he was tried in 1660 as a regicide, it was not done in a corner. Mm. It was brought mm. into the open light of day. And, and that's, I mean, I, I don't have much sympathy with, with the way in which Cromwell and his, his associates conducted this, but that is admirable. Mm. And I, I, I think one of the things we often miss from that great narrative is that the, these legal figures, John Cook and in particular Isaac Dorislavs, put a huge amount of effort into making sure that all the precedents and legal cases that they could put together were there. But unfortunately, because Charles refused to play ball, they had all these wonderful speeches prepared that never got delivered. Cook famously produces the prosecuting, it, counsel, the prosecuting yeah. counsel, produces it afterwards, mm-hmm. and describes the trial as the most comprehensive, impartial, glorious piece of justice ever acted. Now he's obviously a little bit biased, but <laughs> you know he—he's he, a good lawyer. Mm, that's true. Diane, you want to come in? Well. Conversely, I mean, there's also a kind of biblical rhetoric that, I mean, you, you spoke about Nebuchadnezzar, but another way that people... Because Nebuchadnezzar apologised and was let off. Mm. Right. Well, another, another way of seeing these events is that um, many people would have believed that they were on the verge of the last days before Christ came in judgment. And one reason that they felt themselves capable of dethroning and executing a king was because they were expecting to be ruled by Christ the king any day now. Some of them were, anyhow. And, I mean, the, people actually say things like, you know, well, we've identified Charles as one of the ten horns of the beast from the book of Revelations and I mean once you've made that kind of connection it becomes not only inevitable but absolutely necessary to range yourself against this diabolically inspired figure um, and I mean the other kind of big factor that's going to be motivating some of these people, not not so much the firebrand radicals but the more ordinary kind of middle management people that are actually conducting the trial is is the belief that the blood of the dead is actually superstitiously kind of crying out from the ground. Um, if you see the dead of the atrocities and the battles as murder victims then you actually feel a sense of obligation to lay those bones to rest. Right. What defined the end of the trial and how did they come to say, we will send you to your death? Can you just take us there, Justin, and then we can move through the, through the execution to the consequences? I think by the 27th... Um, the of January. Of January. Seven days um, in, yeah. They, they've really lost the plot. 
because Ch Charles just simply won't play ball. They've they've tried every tactic, um, both behind the scenes and in the, in the public court, to get him to enter a plea. He won't acknowledge the authority of the court. They've they've had all the evidence, so that they decide in the painted chamber uh, on the morning of the twenty seventh that that they have to proceed to sentence. And you know, Bradshaw, Lord President Bradshaw, has a long and and very sort of deeply researched uh, presentation of why he's guilty. Um, Ch Charles, at this last moment, suddenly you know, recognizes, oh my lord, you know, they, they are actually going to sentence me to death. And, and attempts to speak. But, of course, in procedural terms, as far as that court is then concerned, he's, he's, he's quiet. He cannot speak. Mm -hmm. And you have this rather touching um, moment at the end, recorded in different ways by royalists mm -hmm. and parliamentarians, that when Charles recognises this, he either gives a haughty ha, as if, what do I care, or an agonised ha, as, mm -hmm. as if, you know, he suddenly got the view. Mm -hmm. And in essence, at that mm -hmm. point, then, Bradshaw gives a massive set piece that condemns him as a tyrant, invokes all of the Old Testament stuff, and, and Charles is wheeled out. Mm -hmm. David, can you take us to the execution? Because it's amazing that it's three days later he's executed. Mm -hmm. And if you just tell us... Yes, I mean, I don't think this is, this is speedy justice by our standards. It's not speedy justice by 17th century mm -hmm. standards. Mm -hmm. they're, they're proceeding... I mean, a, a normal treason trial lasts a day. This mm -hmm. one is dragged on for seven days from their point of view, I think. But yes, as soon as they've condemned him, uh, they're, they're on the way to executing him. They've got to make practical preparations. They've got to decide where to do it. They've got to build a scaffold and so on. And, and they take him down uh, and they keep him waiting while they pass this last bit of legislation to make it possible to execute him. And, and they take him out onto the scaffold. And, and really, I think they haven't understood the man they're dealing with because Charles has shown a perfect uh, composure and and self-restraint throughout the trial. But they're terrified, or they're not terrified, they're alarmed and concerned that he will break loose on the scaffold. Mm -hmm. And so they've, they've put uh, staples where they can chain him down mm -hmm. if he tries to struggle. Mm -hmm. And they've put up a block which is only 10 inches high. Well, normally a gentleman would kneel and the block would be about two foot high, so it would sit, fit neat, neatly under his neck while he's kneeling. And they asked Charles to put his head on the block. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he knows he's going to have to lie down to do this. And he says, why can't the block be higher? The reason the block can't be higher is they're, 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 they're afraid of, 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 of him struggling. Mm. But before that, he wants to make a speech, and it's a, a basic right of a condemned man to make a speech before he's executed. Mm. Usually what you do is you, you speak, speak in favour of, of, of justice. He can't be heard by the crowd, and he speaks to those around him, and his words are recorded, and, and he speaks with great dignity. And then he puts his head down on the block, and he raises his hair, under his hat so the executioner can get a, a good blow. The executioner and his assistant are wearing fake moustaches and fake hair so no one will be able to recognise them. People are very fri frightened of reprisals, which do actually happen. Doroslaus, who's been mentioned earlier, is assassinated. Mm. Uh, and he dies what you might call a noble death. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Now, can we go straight to the consequences because, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Mm. This book appears, Icon Basilica, which, in a sense, let us take... Please. I'm used to yeah. make it easy. That is a, a, the defining one of the defining things that happens over the next ten years. Can you briskly tell Absolutely. us what that is and why it's so important? Icon Basilica, an image of holiness, probably written by his um, chaplain, but represents uh, Charles really as Christ, as as the divinely anointed uh, inspiration, and does more for monarchy, even perhaps today, than any other act. 
it, it becomes uh, 60 volumes published in the same year. It becomes a standard stock text. It has the beautiful image at the front of Charles kneeling with the crown of thorns in front of the Bible being you know, infused. With he is the, the king martyr. He is, th and that's the origins of the Society of Charles the Martyr that still persists today. So it invents this sacral, um, a, an image for the sacral image of, 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 of Charles as God, ultimately. And that powers through the protectorate, doesn't it? Uh, Cromwell's there, smashing Ireland, smashing Scotland, and then uh, here in this country, protector, passing on his title to his <laughs> bringing back the hereditary principle, <laughs> uh, and so on. But this... This this icon basilica from that moment it's an extraordinary fuse, isn't it? it, it it's really as a tradition, as an invented tradition. It, it's uh, identified in the January the thirtieth commemorative sermons that exist in the Book of Common Prayer into the late nineteenth century. It becomes a moment of mourning every year. And what happens to the regicides, David Wooden, when Charles the Second comes back at the Restoration? What happens to the regicides, Charles, to the killers? Charles the Second comes back in 1660, saying that he will show mercy to all those who fought against him, uh, with virtually no exceptions. But they then get a royalist parliament elected, and it's clear there are going to be more than a few exceptions. And essentially, they say that if you're a regicide, or if you prosecuted the king, or if you the death, if you carried out the death warrant then you're in serious trouble. They've got 45 of them still alive of the regicides out of 59. Uh, they uh, arrest those who can. Some go willingly to trial and stand up bravely and boldly and say they're not ashamed of what they did, that it wasn't done in a corner. Some try and flee the country, some successfully. Some are then assassinated abroad. Some are captured and brought back. In the end, they execute nine of the regicides uh, and they do deals with numbers of the others and they execute four of the people who've prosecuted him. Diane? They actually dig up the bodies of Cromwell and Ireton and hang them on a gibbet at Tyburn. So I think it's important not to underestimate how vindictive the Restoration regime is. And though Charles II does come in saying he's not going to do anything nasty and he's going to be a very peaceful kind of figure, it doesn't turn out that way at all. Um, it, it's really not a, a, a peaceable kind of movement. But it does show how vehemently... Um, people on the royalist side had come to feel about the regicide by then and certainly an instrument in that is like in Basilicae. I talked about lighting a fuse, it's a very commonplace image but still, does it go through English history and have other ramifications just in general? I, I think it not only goes through English history but perhaps through European and global history because the, the trial of, of Charles I becomes the model for, for subsequent revolutions whether it's the Americans in 1776, the French in 1789 or, or even Fidel Castro in the 1950s. That, that first political trial of a head of state for crimes against the people however the inaccurate that may be becomes an icon in itself and it's probably responsible for the fact that the Republican sort of movement today is, is nowhere because it's almost still too complicated even with our ability to forget the past to imagine carrying an axe and killing a king. You know, our current monarchy is too kind for that. Well, thank you all very much. I really enjoyed that. Dan Perkis, Justin Champion, David Wooten. Next week, right, the Augustan age in Roman history, Ovid, Virgil and the regime of Emperor Augustus. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.